Chapter Sixteen, Part Two of Kangaroo by D. H. Lawrence. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lisa Murphy, Richmond, Virginia. Chapter Sixteen: A Row in Town, Part Two. The masses are always strictly non-mental. Their consciousness is preponderantly vertebral, and from time to time, as some great life idea cools down and sets upon them like a cold crust of lava, the vertebral powers will work below the crust, apart from the mental consciousness, till they have come to such a heat of unison and unanimity, such a pitch of vibration, that men are reduced to a great non-mental oneness, as in hot-blooded whales and then, like whales which suddenly charge upon the ship which tortures them, so they burst upon the vessel of civilization. Or, like whales that burst up through the ice that suffocates them, so they will burst up through the fixed consciousness, the congealed idea, which they can now only blindly react against. At the right moment, a certain cry, like a war cry, a catchword, suddenly sounds, and the movement begins. The purest lesson our era has taught is that man, at his highest, is an individual, single, isolate, alone, indirect soul communication with the unknown God, which prompts within him. This lesson, however, puts us in danger of conceit, especially spiritual conceit. In his supreme being, man is alone, isolate, nakedly himself, in contact only with the unknown God. This is our way of expressing nirvana. But, just as a tree is only perfect in blossom because it has groping roots, so is man only perfected in his individual being by his groping, pulsing unison with mankind. The unknown God is within, at the quick. But this quick must send down roots into the great flesh of mankind. In short, the spirit has got a lesson to learn, the lesson of its own limitation. This is for the individual, and the infinite, which is man writ large, or humanity, has a still bitterer lesson to learn. It is the individual alone who can save humanity alive. But the greatest of great individuals must have deep, throbbing roots down in the dark red soil of the living flesh of humanity, which is the bitter pill which Buddhists and all advocates of pure spirit must swallow. In short, man even the greatest man, does not live only by his spirit and his pure contact with the Godhead, for example, nirvana. Blessed are the pure in heart, blessed are the poor in spirit. He is forced to live in vivid rapport with the mass of men. If he denies this, he cuts his roots. He intermingles as the roots of a tree interpenetrate the fat, rock-ribbed earth. How? In this same vertebral correspondence— the mystic may stare at his own navel and try to abstract himself forever towards nirvana. It is half at least illusion. There is all the time a powerful unconscious interplay going on between the vertebral centers of consciousness in all men, a deep, mindless current flashing and quivering through the family, the community, the nation, the continent, and even the world. No man can really isolate himself and this vertebral interplay is the root of our living, must always be so. And this vertebral interplay is subject to the laws of polarity, 
since it's an intercommunion of active, polarized, conscious force. There is a dual polarity and a dual direction. There is the outward or downward pulse in the great motion of sympathy or love, the love that goes out to the weaker, to the poor, to the humble. The vast, prostrate mass now becomes the positive pole of attraction, woman, the working classes. The whole of the great current of vertebral consciousness in mankind is supposed now to run in this direction, but the whole movement is but a polarized circuit. Insist on one direction over much, derange the circuit, and you have a terrible debacle, which brings us to another aspect of relativity, relativity in dynamic living. When the flow is sympathetic, or love, then the weak, the woman, the masses, assume the positivity. But the balance, even, is only kept by stern authority, the unflinching obstinacy of the return force of power. When the flow is power, might, majesty, glory, then it is a culminating flow towards one individual, through circles of aristocracy towards one grand center. Emperor, pope, tyrant, king, whatever may be, it is the grand obeisance before a master. In the balance of these two flows lies the secret of human stability. In the absolute triumph of either flow lies the immediate surety of collapse. We have gone very far in the first direction. Democracy has almost triumphed. The only real master left is the boss in industry, and he is to be dethroned. Labor is to wear the absolute crown of the everyday hat. Even the top hat is doomed. Labor shall be its own boss and possess its own means and ends. The serpent shall swallow itself in a last gulp. Mastership is based on possessions. To kill mastership, you must have communal ownership. Then have it, for this superiority based on possession of money is worse than any of the pretensions of labor or Bolshevism strictly. Let the serpent swallow itself. Then we can have a new snake. The moment labor takes upon itself to be its own boss, the whole show is up. The end is begun. While ever the existing boss succeeds in hanging on to his money capital, we get the present conditions of nullity and nagging. We're between the devil and a deep sea. What Richard wanted was some sort of a new show, a new recognition of the life mystery, a departure from the dreariness of money-making, money-having, and money-spending. It meant a new recognition of difference, of highness and lowness, of one man meet for service and another man clean with glory, having majesty in himself, the innate majesty of the purest individual, not the strongest instrument, like Napoleon, not the tuppany trick majesty of Kaiser's, but the true majesty of the single soul, which has all its own weaknesses, but its strength in spite of them, its own lovableness, as well as its might and dread. The single soul that stands naked between the dark god and the dark-blooded masses of men. Now, kangaroo, said Richard, is in a false position. He wants to save property for the property owners, and he wants to save labor from itself and from the capitalist and the politician and all. In fact, he wants to save everything as we have it, and it can't be done. You can't eat your cake and have it, and I prefer Willie Struthers. Bolshevism is at least not sentimental. It's a last step towards an end, a hopeless end. But 
better disaster than an equivocal nothingness like the present kangaroo wants to be god himself and save everybody which is just irritating at last kangaroo is god himself with a kind marsupial belly is worse than struthers absolute of the people though it's a choice of evils and i choose neither i choose the lord almighty having made up his mind so far richard came up to the big mass meeting of labor in the great canberra hall in sydney the labor leaders had lost much ground labor was slipping into disorganization the property-owning conservatives and liberals were just beginning to rejoice again the reduction of the basic wage had been brought about a further reduction was announced at the same time the government was aiming a strong blow at the unions it had pronounced the right of every man to work as he himself chose and the right of employers to agree with non-union workers as to rate of wages it had further announced its determination to protect the non-union worker by holding the union responsible for any attacks on non-union men the leaders of a union were to be arrested and held responsible for attacks on non-workers in case of bloodshed and death they were to be tried for manslaughter or for murder the first to be arrested should be the chief of the union concerned after him his immediate subordinates now the sword was drawn and labor was up in arms meetings were held every day a special meeting was announced at canberra hall admission by ticket summers had asked jazz if he could get him a ticket and jazz had succeeded there were two meetings one a small gathering for discussion at half past eight in the morning the other the mass meeting at seven at night richard got up in the dark to catch the six o'clock train to sydney it was a dark cloudy morning night still and a few frogs still were rattling away in a hollow towards the sea like a weird little factory of machines whirring and trilling and screeching in the dark at the station some miners were filling their tin bottles at the water tap pale and extinguished looking men dawn began to break over the sea in a bluey green rift between clouds there seemed to be rain the journey was endless in sydney it was raining but richard did not notice he hurried to the hall to the meeting it lasted only half an hour but it was straightforward and sensible when richard heard the men among themselves he realized how logical their position was in pure philosophy he came out with jazz whom he had not seen for a long time jazz looked rather pale and he was very silent brooding your sympathy is with labor jazz my sympathy is with various people mr summers replied jazz non-communicative it was no use talking to him he was too much immersed the morning was very rainy and sydney big city as it is a real metropolis in pitt street and george street seemed again like a settlement in the wilderness without any core one of the great cities of the world but without a core unless perhaps camborough hall were its real centre everybody very friendly and nice the friendliest country in the world in some ways the gentlest but without a core there was no heart in it at all it seemed hollow with midday came the sun and the clear sky a wonderful clear sky and a hot hot sun richard bought sandwiches and a piece of apple turnover and went into the palace gardens to eat them 
so that he need not sit in a restaurant. He loathed the promiscuity and publicity of even the good restaurants. The promiscuous feeding gave him a feeling of disgust. So he walked down the beautiful slope to the water again and sat on a seat by himself near a clump of strange palm trees that made a weird noise in the breeze. The water was blue and dancing, and again he felt as if the harbor were wild, lost and undiscovered, as it was in Captain Cook's time. The city wasn't real. In front of the small blue bay lay two little warships, pale gray, with the white flag having the Union Jack in one corner floating behind. And one boat had the Australian flag, with the five stars on a red field. They lay quite still, and seemed as lost as everything else, rusting into the water. Nothing seemed to keep its positive reality this morning in the strong sun after the rain. The two ships were like bits of palpable memory that persisted, but were only memory images. Two tiny birds, one brown, one with a sky-blue patch on his head, like a dab of sky, fluttered and strutted, hoisting their long tails at an absurd angle. They were real, the absurd, sharp, unafraid creatures. They seemed to have no deep natural fear, as creatures in Europe have. Again and again, Summers had felt this in Australia. The creatures had no sense of fear, as in Europe. There was no animal fear in the air, as there is so deeply in India. Only sometimes a gray, metaphysical dread. Perhaps, thought he to himself, this is really the country where men might live in a sort of harmless Eden, once they have settled the old Adam in themselves. He wandered the hot streets, walked round the circular quay, and saw the women going to the fairies. So many women, almost elegant. Yet their elegance, provincial, without pride, awful. So many almost beautiful women. When they were in repose, quite beautiful, with pure, wistful faces, and some nobility in expression. Then, see them change countenance, and it seemed almost always a grimace of ugliness. Hear them speak, and it was startling, so ugly. Once in motion, they were not beautiful. Still, when their features were immobile, they were lovely. Richard had noticed this in many cases, and they were like the birds, quite without fear, impudent, perky, with a strange spasmodic self-satisfaction. Almost every one of the younger women walked as if she thought she was sexually trailing every man in the street after her. And that was absurd, too, because the men seemed more often than not to hurry away and leave a blank space between them and these women. But it made no matter. Like mad women the females, in their quasi-elegance, pranced with that prance of crazy triumph in their own sexual powers, which left little Richard flabbergasted. Hot, big, free-and-easy streets of Sydney, without any sense of imposition of control. No control, everybody going his own ways with alert harmlessness. On the pavement, the foot-passengers walked in two divided streams, keeping to the left, and by their unanimity made it impossible for you to wander and look at the shops, if the shops happened to be on your right. The stream of foot-passengers flowed over you. And so it was, far more regulated than London, yet all with a curious exhilaration of voluntariness that oppressed Richard like a madness. No control and no opposition to control. Policemen were ciphers, not noticeable. Every man his own policeman. 
the terrible lift of the harmless crowd, the strange relief from all superimposed control. One feels the police, for example, in London, and their civic majesty of authority. But in Sydney, no majesty of authority at all. Absolute freedom from all that. Great freedom in the air. Yet, if you got into the wrong stream on the pavement, you felt they'd tread you down, almost unseeing. You just mustn't get in the wrong stream. Liberty. Yes, the strange unanimity of harmlessness in the crowd had a half-paralyzing effect on Richard. Can it be, he said to himself, as he drifted in the strong sun-warmth of the world after rain, in the afternoon of this strange, antipodal city, can it be that there is any harm in these people at all? They were quick, and their manners were, in a free way, natural and kindly. They might say, right-ho, right you are. They did say it, even in the most handsome and palatial banks and shipping offices. But they were patient and unaffected in their response. That was the beauty of the men, their absolute lack of affectation, their naive simplicity, which was at the same time sensitive and gentle. The gentlest country in the world, really a high pitch of breeding, good breeding at a very high pitch, innate and in its shirt sleeves. A strange country, a wonderful country. Who knows what future it may have? Can a great continent breed a people of this magic harmlessness without becoming a sacrifice of some other external power? The land that invites parasites now, where parasites breed like nightmares, what would happen if the power lust came that way? Richard bought himself a big, knobbly, green, soft-crusted apple at a Chinese shop and a pretty mother-of-pearl spoon to eat it with. The queer Chinese, with their gabbling-gobbling way of speaking, were they parasites too? A strange, strange world. He took himself off to the gardens to eat his custard apple, a pudding inside a knobbly green skin, and to relax into the magic ease of the afternoon. The warm sun, the big blue harbor with its hidden bays, the palm trees, the ferry steamer sliding flatly, the perky birds, the inevitable shabby-looking loping sort of men strolling across the green slopes, past the red poinsettia bush, under the big flame tree, under the blue, blue sky, Australian Sydney, with a magic like sleep, like sweet, soft sleep, a vast ending sun-hot afternoon sleep with the world a mirage. He could taste it all in the soft, sweet, creamy custard apple, a wonderful sweet place to drift in, but surely a place that will some day wake terribly from this sleep. Yet why should it? Why should it not drift marvelously forever with its sun and its marsupials? The meeting in the evening, nonetheless, was a wild one, and Richard could not believe there was any real vindictiveness. He couldn't believe that anybody really hated anybody. There was a touch of sardonic tolerance in it all. Oh, that sardonic tolerance! and at the same time that overwhelming obstinacy and power of endurance, the strange Australian power of enduring, enduring suffering or opposition or difficulty, just blank enduring, in the long run, just endure. Richard sat next to Jazz. Jazz was very still, very still indeed, seated with his hands in his lap. 
"'Will there be many diggers here?' Lovett asked. "'Oh, yes, there's quite a crowd over there with Jack.' And Richard looked quickly and saw Jack. He knew Jack had seen him. But now he was looking the other way. And again Richard felt afraid of something. It was a packed hall, tense. There was plenty of noise and interruption, plenty of home thrust at the speakers from the audience. But still, that sense of sardonic tolerance, endurance. What's the odds, boys? Willie Struthers gave the main speech on the solidarity of labor. He sketched the industrial situation and elaborated the change that labor was cutting its own throat by wrecking industry and commerce. "'But will anything get us away from this fact, mate?' he said. "'That there's never a shop shuts down because it can't pay the weekly wage bill. "'If a shop shuts down, it's because it can't pay a high enough dividend, and there you've got it.' "'Australian labor has set out from the first on the principle that huge fortunes should not be made out of its efforts. "'We've had the obvious example of America before us, and we've been determined from the start that Australia should not fall into the hands of a small number of millionaires and a larger number of semi-millionaires. It's been our idea that a just proportion of all profits should circulate among the workers in the form of wages. Supposing the worker does get his pound a day. It's enormous, isn't it? It's preposterous. Of course it is. But it isn't preposterous for a small bunch of owners or shareholders to get their ten pounds a day. For doing nothing? Sundays included? That isn't preposterous, is it? They raise the plea that their fathers and their forefathers accumulated the capital by their labors. Well, haven't our fathers and forefathers labored? Haven't they? And what have they accumulated? The right to labor on and be paid for what the others like to give them. We don't want to wreck industry. But we say wages shall go up so that profits shall go down. Why should there be any profits after all? Forefathers. Why, we've all had forefathers, and I'm sure mine worked. Why should there be any profits at all, I should like to know? And if profits there must be, well then, the profit grabber isn't going to get ten times as much as the wage earner just because he had a few screwing forefathers. We, who work for what we get, are going to see that the man who doesn't work shall not receive a large income for not working. If he's got to have an income for doing nothing, let him have no more than what we call wages. The laborer is worthy of his hire, and the hire is worthy of his laborer. But I cannot see that any man is worthy of an unearned income. Let there be no unearned incomes. So much for the basic wage. We know it is not the basic wage that wrecks industry, it is big profits. When the profits are not forthcoming, the directors would rather close down. A criminal proceeding. Because, after all, any big works is run, first, to supply the community with goods, and second, to give a certain proportion of the community a satisfactory occupation. Whatever net profits are made are made by cheating the worker and the consumer, filching a bit from every one of them, no matter how small a bit. And we will not see wages reduced one halfpenny to help to fill the pockets of shareholders. "'What about your own shares in Nestle's milk, Willie?' asked a voice. "'I'll throw them in the fire the minute they're out of date,' said Willie promptly. "'They're pretty well waste paper already.' 
he went on to answer the charges of corruption and tammany with which the labor party in australia had been accused this led to the point of class hatred it is we who are supposed to foster class hatred he said now i put it to you does the so-called upper class hate us or do we hate them more if you'll let me answer i tell you it's they who do the hating we don't wear the flesh off our bones hating them they aren't worth it they're far beneath hatred we do want one class only not your various shades of upper and lower we want the people and the people means the worker i don't mind what a man works at he can be a doctor or a lawyer even if men are such fools they must have doctors and lawyers but look here mates what do we all work for for a living then why won't a working man's living wage do for a lawyer why not perhaps a lawyer makes an ideal of his job perhaps he's inspired in his efforts to right the wrongs of his client very well virtue is its own reward if he wants to be paid for it it isn't virtue any more it's dirty trading injustice or whatever the law means look at your upper classes mates look at your lawyer charging you two guineas for half an hour's work look at your doctor scrambling for his guinea a visit look at your experts with their five thousand a year call these upper classes upper in what in the make-and-grab faculties that's all to hell with their upper if a working man thinks he'll be in the running and demands say half of what these gentry get then he's the assassin of his trade and country it's his business to grovel before these upper gents is it no mates it's his business to rise up and give em a good kick in the seats of their pants to remind them of their bedrock bottoms you'd think to hear all the fairy tales they let off that their pants didn't have such a region of seats like the bloomin little angels all fluttery tops and no bottoms don't you be sucked in any more mates look at em and you'll see they've got good heavy-weight sit-upons and big deep trouser pockets next door that's them upend em for once and look at em upside down greedy fat arses mates if you'll pardon the vulgarity for once greedy fat arses and that's what we've got to knuckle under to is it they're the upper classes them and a few derelict lords and cuttlefish capitalists upper classes i'm damned if i see much upper about it mates drop em in the sea and they'll float butt end uppermost you see if they don't for that's where they keep their fat like the camel his hump upper classes but i wish them no special harm a bit of a kick in the rear to remind them that they've got a rear a largely kickable rear and then let them pick themselves up and mingle with the rest give them a living wage like any working man but it's hell on earth to see them floating their fat bottoms through the upper regions and just stooping low enough to lick the cream off things as it were and to squeal if a working man asks for more than a gill of the skilly work what is one man's job more than another your andrew carnegie's and your rothschilds may be very smart at their jobs all right give them the maximum wage give them a pound a day they won't starve on it and what do they want with more a job is nothing but a job when all's said and done and if mr hebrew rothschild is smart on the finance job so am i a smart sheep shearer hold my own with any man 
And what's the odds? Wherein is Mr. Hebrew, or Lord Benjamin Israelite, any better man than I am? Why does he want so damn much for his dirty financing, and begrudges me my bit for sharing ten score a sheep? No, mates, we're not sucked in. It may be Mr. Steele Trust Carnegie. It may even be Mr. Very Clever Marconi. It may be Marquis Tribes von Israel. And it is certainly Willie Struthers. Now, mates, I, Willie Struthers, a big fortune I do not want. But I'm damned if I'm going to let a few other brainy vampires suck big fortunes out of me. Not I. I wouldn't be a man if I did. Upper classes? They've got more greedy brains in the seats of their pants than in their top stories. We're having no more of their classes and masses. We'll just put a hook in their trouser bottoms and hook them gently to earth. That's all. And put them on a basic wage like all the rest. One job, one wage. Isn't that fair? No man can do more than his best. And why should one poor devil get ten bob for his level best? and another fat arse get ten thousand for some bloomin' trick. No, no, if a man's a sincere citizen, he does his best for the community he belongs to, and his simple wage is enough for him to live on. That's why we'll have a Soviet. Water finds its own level, and so shall money. It shall not be dammed up by a few sly fat arses much longer. I don't pretend it will be paradise. But there'll be fewer lies about it, and less fat-arsed hypocrisy, and less dirty injustice than there is now. If a man works, he shall not have less than the basic wage, be he even a lying lawyer. There shall be no politicians, thank God. But, more than the basic wage also, he shall not have. Let us bring things down to a rock bottom. Upper? Why, all their uppishness amounts to is extra-special greedy guts, 10,000 a year minimum. Upper classes, upper classes, upper arses. We'll have a Soviet, mates, and then we shall feel better about it. We shall be getting nastily tempered if we put it off much longer. Let's know our own mind. We'll unite with the world's workers. Which doesn't mean we'll take the hearts out of our chest to give it to Brother Brown to eat. No, Brother Brown and Brother Yellow had, on the whole, best stop at home and sweep their own streets, rather than come and sweep ours. But that doesn't mean we can't come to more or less of an understanding with them. We don't want to get too much mixed up with them or anybody. But a proper understanding we can have. I don't say, open the gates of Australia to all the waiting workers of India and China, let alone Japan. But mates... You can be quite friendly with your neighbor over the fence without giving him the run of your house. And that is international labor. You have a genuine understanding with your neighbors down the street. You know they won't shy stones through your windows or break into your house at night or kill your children in a dark corner. Why not? Because they're your neighbors and you all have a certain amount of trust in one another. And that is international labor. That is the world's workers. End of chapter 16, part 2.